You're listening to one of the fully public episodes of Two for Tea. I'm your host, Iona Italia, and I'm assisted behind the scenes by my sound engineer, Justin Ward. This is a podcast about politics, society, science, and art, and about how everyone is wrong apart from us. I hope to provide a forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum and counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria. The podcast is entirely listener-supported. To gain access to full-length versions of all our episodes, support us on Patreon at 2 for T. Welcome to the conversation. Hello, everyone. My guest this week is Yasmin Mohammed. Yasmin is the head of the organization Free Hearts, Free Minds, which I hope we will talk about later in this interview. She is currently working on a book on forgotten feminists, which I'll also talk to you about later, Yasmin. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've mainly invited her here today to talk about her memoir, Unveiled, How Western Liberals Empower Radical Islam. Welcome, Yasmin. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. It's my great pleasure to have you. I absolutely loved the book. Um, I found it extremely vivid and on disarmingly honest. Mm-hmm. Um, you are quite startlingly honest about your feelings, motivations, experiences. So I find that very refreshing. And I think it's a, I think that um, ex-Muslims and atheists from the for, from the former Muslim world um, are one of the most neglected groups and one of the groups who Western liberals should be doing a lot more to support. So thank you so much for writing that. Yes, thank you so much for reading it and for understanding my message. I 100% agree with you. Of course, you know that from reading my book. Um, and yeah, I just thought it was funny that you commented on how I was startling startlingly (laughs) honest um, because I was meeting with a friend of mine who's known me since high school and she'd read my book. And one of the first things she said to me was like, weren't you embarrassed to write all that stuff? (laughs) She's like, I'd be so embarrassed to just write like everything about my life and what I was thinking and feeling. And, and I was like, well, you know, it was, it was like writing, a journal. I wasn't thinking that anybody was actually going to ever read it because I think if I was thinking that, I mean, I'm glad I wasn't, but if I was thinking that it probably would have restricted me, I probably would have been more careful. But, um, yeah, after I finished reading it, I, as you know, from reading my book as well, I almost wasn't going to publish it. I was done. I was like, well, the, the, the project of writing it has been so cathartic and so healing. I mean, so obviously incredibly painful, but after the pain and the trauma and the the blood, sweat, and tears, there is some healing. And um, I was like, well, that's it. I I don't need to put it out there in the world. This was just a a project for me. But um, our good friend Sam Harris convinced me otherwise. He convinced me that people you know, that I should put it out there. And if people read it, they read it. If they don't, they don't, but at least, but I should try, I should try to get the message out. Let's start from your childhood because you grew up in Canada, but 
you grew up in a in a very strict Muslim household in Canada, and so you had a very different experience, uh, childhood experiences, from a normal Canadian. Tell us a little bit about what your childhood was like. Sure. Um, so I was raised, I guess, what they're now calling separatist. So I was taught that as Muslims, we should stay separate from the non-Muslims. There is a verse in the Quran that says Muslims should never take non-Muslims as their friends. Um, So that was drilled into me from a, a very young age. And when I was about six years old, uh, my mother married a man who was already married and already had kids of his own, but in Islam, a man can have up to four wives. So he took my mom on as his second wife, and then she started to become a religious zealot. So she was following his lead. And he came into our lives, and you know, suddenly everything was haram. Everything was forbidden. So he would he broke all of my mom's Dolly Parton and Hank Williams and Kenny Rogers records. And he didn't allow us to play with the neighbor's kids anymore. My two best friends were Chelsea and Lindsay. I lived in an apartment building, and they lived down the hall from me. And I was no longer allowed to play with them because they were non-Muslim. And eventually, I ended up going to an Islamic school to make sure that I had no interaction with the greater society around me without, with, without, with non-believers, essentially. And um, in the Islamic school, of course, that's when the hijab was put on me. So I was nine years old, and uh, the hijab covers everything but your face and hands. And that's really when my childhood ended, because um, a hijab is put on a girl to signify that she is a sexual being now, and she needs to cover herself up so that she does not incite um, fitna or, or chaos or trouble in the world, specifically in men. So you have to, you have to cover yourself so that you don't entice men to, to harass you or assault you or rape you. So I learned about victim blaming from a a very young age. Um, and once I graduated from high school, my mom felt that it was really difficult to control me because I was the type of person that was always asking questions and things like that. Like, please, I did nothing. Like I just, I never had a boyfriend. I never, you know, never did anything that I didn't go drinking. I didn't do drugs. I didn't do anything that normal people would consider outlandish or difficult to control. Um, my only crime was that I asked a lot of questions. And, um, so we went to Egypt as a family and I thought we were just there for the summer. And I woke up one morning thinking that we were heading for the airport, but the house was empty. So my mom and my brother and my sister had left, went back to Canada and they just left me in Egypt where I would be surrounded by Muslims and hopefully be straightened out. So they considered me too Western. And when I was in Egypt, they tried to get me married off to my cousin 
but luckily I was able to get out. So I was in Egypt for two years before I was finally able to, to come back home. And again, I'm, I'm skimming over this really quickly, but of course it's detailed how I, all the stuff happened in my book. Um, and then when I got back to Canada, my mom just did not know what to do with me. So she decided that she would marry me off to a man who was strong enough to control me. That was her actual quote. And so she chose for me a jihadi, a member of Al-Qaeda, who had spent time about 10 years in Afghanistan before coming to Canada. Um, and so I was forced into a marriage with him and very quickly into the marriage. He was obviously very abusive. Um, and I ended up getting pregnant and it was, uh, another huge, difficult hurdle to get out of that relationship, to get out of that marriage because it was not only getting away from him, but then it was getting away from my mother as well, because I had dishonored her by being divorced. Um, and anyway, through a long series of difficult events, I was able to get myself and my daughter free. And I started going to university. And when I was in university, two things happened. Number one, I took a course on the history of religion. So it was my first opportunity to finally ask those questions and get answers to those questions that whenever I tried in the past, I was told it was the devil whispering in my ear and I would get um, you know, yelled at. And, and basically, I was consumed with this self-hate. Like, why couldn't I just get in line with everybody else? Why was I always so, you know, my mom would call me the black sheep of the family. So in this course, finally, my professor was a, a Lebanese man of, um, his family was Christian. And because he was born and raised in Lebanon, we had like that connection as Arabs. And I felt very safe and comfortable with him. And I learned about my religion for the very first time. I was able to look at it objectively. I was able to critically analyze things. I was able to write academic papers about, you know, this. And, and that's when I started to realize this whole thing is bonkers. This is, this is insane. I have been terrified my entire life over a lie. Um, and as that was happening, the second thing that happened in university was 9-11. And so those two things together were the, the unraveling, the very quick unraveling of my, uh, of my belief. And, um, I stayed quiet for a very, very long time. Obviously no connection with my family. You know, I it's, it's very dangerous to, to leave the religion. The punishment for leaving Islam is execution and that can be done you know, obviously by the state, if you're in an Islamic state, but quite often it's done just by family in honor killings or vigilante justice, which happens quite often in Pakistan and Bangladesh, et cetera, et cetera, whenever they find out that somebody has uh, denounced the religion of Islam. So I had to be very quiet about it. And it wasn't until many, many, many years later that I finally started to speak out. And it was really the, the impetus for that was the 
um, episode of Bill Maher where Sam Harris and Ben Affleck were the guests. And in their conversation, they specifically were talking about people who have left Islam, um, 80% or I think it was like 86%, close to 90% of Egyptians feel that people who leave Islam should be executed. And the fact that these two men were on HBO talking about essentially me, that was me. I was of Egyptian descent and I left Islam. And it felt so strangely empowering to to know that people cared. Like I didn't even want to acknowledge my own existence because I thought, well, nobody cares. Nobody wants to hear about it. I don't even want to hear about it. So I didn't want to think about the situation that I was in. I just kept on moving forward. But the fact that these men were just talking about my life basically as if it mattered, really, um, I felt really grateful for that. And then, of course, Ben Affleck came along and called them gross and racist. And, you know, the rest is history. <laughs> but um, that, that really made me feel like, you know what, I have to speak out because you know, these men are being attacked simply for being white American males. Nobody is even engaging with the arguments that they're making. And so I thought, well, here I am, you know, a brown-skinned Arab female saying the exact same thing. And I thought that would force people to engage with the actual argument. Like, how are you going to defend people wanting to murder other people for choosing to not believe in a religion. You know, let, let's just forget the fact that they're white American men and let's just talk about the issue here. Go ahead and tell me how you think you're going to defend that. And that's why I started speaking out. Well, I'm so glad you did. <laughs> Thank you for that. I'm going to just, just rewinding a little bit, um, midway through your childhood, um, your teacher, the yes. same teacher to whom you dedicate the book, mm -hmm. uh, noticed your um, unhappiness and you were being beaten at home by your mm -hmm. quote-unquote uncle, who was actually your mother's lover. Mm -hmm. He helped um, institute a case um, in the child protection courts in Canada, um, a case which you lost. And you have an extraordinary um, little passage here about this. His name was Mr. Fabro. That's right. Um, yeah. As a teacher in a public school, it was Mr. Fabro's legal duty to notify the authorities when a minor was in physical danger. Both police and social workers questioned me, and I told them all how my uncle would beat us mercilessly. I told them how he would walk in the door and, without provocation, grab me to release all his pent-up tensions of the day. He would pull off his belt and cover my body in welts. Even though I didn't feel them as they were being created, the bruises and scars remained as evidence of his beatings. Mr. Fabro warned me that if I went along with this, there was a possibility that I might end up in a foster home, that I, that I might never see my family again. He asked if I was prepared for that. I was giddy with excitement. I was as light as air with the possibility that I would never have to see those people again. I was just hoping that sounding this alarm would prevent me from being taken out of school. Am I okay with being taken out of that home, I thought? Are you kidding me? Nothing could possibly be more okay. 
That's such a such a sad, mm. incredibly sad state of affairs. And the most extraordinary thing is the judge ruled that the corporal punishment that you were receiving was not against the law in Canada, um, and that it was part of your culture. Yeah, tell us more about that. Yeah, so that's the the vicious bigotry of low expectations, the vicious cultural and moral relativism that we're seeing played out so much more today. Um, so when that happened to me, I I immediately recognized it as me being treated differently than everybody else. And we just call that racism. So what that judge was saying to me was, had your family been from, you know, France or Sweden or Germany, I would protect you. But your family happens to be from Egypt. And, you know, you're, you happen to come from this Islamic tradition where, you know, it's, it's in the religion is, uh, you know, it's sanctioned to hit your children. So I won't protect you. And that's the same kind of thing that happens with victims of female genital mutilation, for example, in the US, in the UK, all over Europe, there is this um, apologetics, you know, if it was a blonde haired, blue eyed mother that took a razor to her daughter's clitoris, there would be no question that woman would be behind bars. But because it's a Somali mother, then they just let her off with a warning or they make her attend, you know, educational classes on why what she did was wrong. But it absolutely is discriminatory. They, the, that judge thought that he was being the better person by being a cultural relativist, but he was actually being disgustingly racist by telling me, you don't matter as much as other Canadian kids. And it took me a very long time. I don't think I'm over it. If I'm going to be honest, yeah. it still really I'm upsets me. Yeah. I, it took everything in me to, to go, to stand up against my mother, to stand up against her husband. You know, the rest of the kids weren't defending me. They weren't saying the truth because they were scared of him. I mean, his daughter went to school with a, his handprint on her face. You could see that it was clearly the mark of a hand on her face because he'd hit her so hard. And so it wasn't the first time the police had been called to our house. It, it should have been a slam dunk. And the fact that I went through all of that trouble just to be shot down by my own government the you know i i had always been told it's us and them and they hate you and they don't care about you and we're the ones that are going to protect you and the non-believers would love to see you dead and the non-believers this and that and that and i never believed that because non-believers were my friends and my teachers and the the baker and they were kind people they were good people and after the judge did that he actually solidified that teaching. He proved them right. He, it made me feel like, okay, it's true. They really do hate us. This, 
this judge has proven to me that my mom is right. They really actually don't care about us. And it took me years and years before I came out of the depression that I was in. Like I just, I just hated everything and everyone, especially first and foremost myself. Um, and, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't think that he understands the kind of damage that he inflicted on me. And unfortunately I'm, I'm positive. I'm not the only child that this happened to. I know for a fact, I'm not the only child because so many people have written to me and told me their stories. In fact, I've had so many social workers write to me and tell me that they were so haunted by the eyes of the children that they had to walk away from, that they had to leave their positions. They had to, to, you know, choose a different career because it was, um, they could not abide by what their government was demanding that they do, which is to treat children differently based on their cultural background. So, I mean, one, one way in which you were, another way in which you were, um, oppressed as a child, um, was being forced into hijab from age nine. And, uh, later when you were married, um, you also, you wore kneecap. I'm going to read another passage, um, if you don't mind, because you have again, a really, a really vivid description of it. Um, you write, the hijab was a difficult barrier, but the kneecap was another thing entirely. If the hijab said, approach with caution, the full face kneecap said, fuck right off away from me. Wearing a kneecap, you feel like you're in a portable sensory deprivation chamber. It impedes your ability to see, hear, touch, smell. I felt like I was slowly dying inside, slowly deteriorating. I was suffering both physically and emotionally. I wasn't allowed to have any friends, as no one was up to his religious standard. I didn't even know who I was anymore, if I even was somebody at all. My only actions were as a direct result of his. I would not dare to breathe unless he clarified in which direction to exhale. I'd say I walked on eggshells, but it would be more apt to say I stood tensely on eggshells, waiting to see in which direction I was to turn. That idea of of the 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 portable sensory deprivation chamber, I think that's the best description I've I've heard. And I did um I wore hijab myself on one day in Bombay. Um not not in kind of solidarity with people wearing hijab, not as that kind of symbol, but because I wanted to see what the experience felt like. And I really um I I did feel even just in hijab quite uh, that my senses were were um quite curtailed when I was crossing the road I had to be I had to physically turn my head a long way round because my peripheral vision was was somewhat blocked and I also definitely my hearing was muffled which wasn't such a bad thing in Bombay in some ways um but I couldn't I could not hear as clearly and I was absolutely sweltering. I mean, I was just sweating like a pig underneath there. Um, my scalp was itching from the sweat. So I, I, can, I can relate to this in a, in a very small way. Um, what do you say to people who say that it's not a big deal, it's just a, you know, it's just a piece of cloth? So not the kneecap, but just the hijab. 
Um, why is it so important? Well, what's important about it is that women should have the choice whether they want to wear it or not. Nobody else gets to decide for them whether it's a big deal or not. Every individual woman should be able to make that decision for herself. So unfortunately, that's not the case at all. Um, as you saw in my book, my my mom never even knew that I had ever left Islam because she had disowned me way before that. She disowned me from the moment she saw me in public without hijab on. That's when she threatened to kill me. Um, and a young girl, not far from where I was living at the time, a 16-year-old girl was killed by her father and her brother. In fact, they strangled her with the hijab that she refused to wear. And this is in Canada. And the stories are numerous, of course. Um, in countries like Iran, women are imprisoned. Um, women are attacked with acid. Women's hair is cut, like on the subways of Egypt. They'll just have a pair of scissors in their purse. Other women. Um, and they'll just cut the hair of, of women that aren't wearing hijab as a punishment. Um, you know, women are, are, they have to face all sorts of just violent behavior as a response to them choosing what they want to put on their bodies. So that's the problem here. If you think that a hijab is not a big deal and you like, you know, having your, your, your peripheral vision gone and you like your hearing muffled and you enjoy thinking of yourself as, uh, you know, as fitna, as, as something that could cause chaos in the world. If you're happy with victim blaming, you're happy with slut shaming, you feel like you want to support rape culture and you want to wear the hijab, then by all means, go ahead and do that. But if you are a woman who does not believe in any of those things, if you are a feminist who believes that it's a, a tool of misogyny and that it's a way of, of segregating the genders and you don't want to wear it, then you should absolutely have the right to not wear it and to not face any negativity for choosing to not wear it. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, um, you know, part of the issue is that, is that, I mean, there there are, of course, some liberal Muslims who see it just as a kind of a marker of identity, mm -hmm. like other people might wear a cross or a Star of David or something. But that is not how it's treated, because once you put hijab on, you can't decide, today I'll wear a hijab and tomorrow I won't, depending it. on how I feel. Um nor do you, people in general put it on just for specific occasions. I know there are some examples of that. So my my friend Imran, his uh, sister wears hijab just kind of on Eid and a few other occasions like that. And that's great that, that she can make that choice, but not yeah. so many women are not privileged enough to be able to decide. Like you said, once you put it on, once it's put on you, I should say, you don't have the option of taking it off. But then they'll say yeah. that it's a choice. It, it's not. If it's a choice, that means you, like you said, you can put it on or take it off. You know, depending on your own decision, your mood. Yeah, yeah. In Zoroastrianism, because some people might mention this, since mm -hmm. we're, this might occur to some people since we're discussing this topic. Um, 
So we we wear head coverings to go into the fire temple. Both men and women wear head coverings, mm-hmm. um, but only in but you only have to wear head coverings in the temple. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's like a big basket of coverings at the entrance. So if you've forgotten your head, uh, if if you've forgotten your head square or cap or something, you can grab one from there and put it on. Mm-hmm. And then you know every time as I as soon as I left and was outside the precinct, I I just took it straight off again. Um, but hijab is absolutely not like that. Once mm-hmm. you've taken on the kind of wearing of the hijab, or somebody else has made you take it on, then if you don't wear hijab, it becomes a huge issue, mm-hmm. even in the West. So I've seen people who've decided that they no longer want to wear hijab, just getting immense, immense yes. public abuse and threats. And yes. Um, yes, and thank you for mentioning that, because there were quite a few hijabi models who were very popular. They had huge followings on Twitter, social media, YouTube, whatever, um, that decided that they no longer wanted to wear hijab. And these are women that are living, you know, in the UK and America, free countries. And when they decide that they no longer want to wear hijab anymore, it is just a tsunami of hate that comes at them. There's this one woman, her family is from Egypt, um, but she's living in the UK. Her name is Dina, Dina Tokyo. And she has a video, a YouTube video, where for one hour she does nothing but just scroll through her phone and read out all of the death threats and the rape threats and the threats to kill her family. And over her deciding what she wants to wear, it is absolute insanity. And that's in the United Kingdom. So you can just imagine how those same people would react in a country where they can get away with that, in a country where honor violence and honor killing is ignored, or in many ways, it's it's um, expected. It's the norm, and it's it's even appreciated because you know it's a man's duty to protect the honor of his family, and if this woman doesn't want to cover herself up properly, then it's his responsibility to put her in her place. So you you can just imagine what it's like for women in those countries. There are women in Pakistan, women in Iraq, women that have had, like, again, we know them only because they're women that have had huge Instagram followings or something like that, where they get like just shot in the head in the street or killed by their family members because the entire society is so threatened, so threatened by a woman saying, I do not want to wear this clothing. They, they are so scared of losing control. They're, they're so scared of, 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 of any sort of um, fissures in the, in the patriarchy that they've worked so hard to uphold. And so women cannot even decide what they want to wear on their own bodies without the entire society, men and women, policing them, controlling them, attacking them. And in some cases, the women take their own lives because of the constant abuse. Yeah, I I have never been able to see how there can be any justification for a modesty dress for women um, when men don't don't have to dress modestly. 
in general. And it it just implies that there is something immodest about simply being a woman. Yes. Simply inhabiting a woman's body and having a woman's hair. Yes. Uh, that is, you know, that that to me goes to the crux of of uh, everything that is wrong with that way of thinking. I don't know how much I want to go into the story of your husband's involvement with Al Qaeda because I would, I really want people to read the book, and it's one of the most kind of shocking um, and vivid portions of the book. But perhaps we could talk a little bit about how you finally broke through and how you adapt to secular life and what maybe people can do to kind of facilitate that. I mean, one thing I've done is that, uh, well, for a while now, um, not connected to your book, but when I, I definitely used to, if I saw a woman um, alone in a kneecap, I would kind of keep my distance. And now I, I make a point of trying to have some kind of friendly interaction with her because I I don't want to promote this kind of separatism and isolation and I don't want to kind of those people to feel that society is sort of stacked against them um which is which is how it must feel if you are in that religion ideology and living such a a separate life um a separated, separatist life that was a very good way of putting it. So, um, yeah, can you tell us about how you finally broke free and what were the things that helped you move from that to freedom and secular life? You know, I could have honestly written a second book just answering that question. The The rebirth, the... I wouldn't even call it a rebirth it, it, because it was like my initial birth. I was, it was for the first time I had to use my brain. I had to think about things and make decisions. You know, I have to give you a little bit of background about Islam. It's a very, very um, constricting religion. Every single thing is laid out for you. So it's everything is very, very specific. So it's called a surat al-mustaqim, the, the long, thin path. And when they visualize it for you, they sh- the, it, like in the Islamic studies books or in the posters in Iran or something, what they'll do is they'll draw a picture of a tight wire and below that tight wire is the burning fires of hell. So as a Muslim, you have to walk on this very thin, tight rope. And if you misstep, you're going straight to hell for eternity. So that is the fear that I was living in my whole life. So you're told from the moment you open your eyes in the morning, you know, you're told how to put your clothes on, how to go to the washroom how to cut your nails, how to eat, how, I mean, literally every single aspect of your life is dictated for you. So there's never an opportunity to think. In fact, thinking is highly discouraged, if not punished. You're not supposed to make decisions for yourself. You're supposed to follow 
the path. And being born and raised in that, your brain almost becomes dormant. It never has an opportunity to even come to life. And so when I started going to university, it was like a drug for me, like critical thinking, being able, like decision making. It was terrifying because I no longer had such order in my life. Suddenly it was, I had so many choices. There were so many different things that I could do. And it was debilitating because I I didn't know what was right and what was wrong. There was no manual for me. There was no guidebook. I had to figure it out. And as scary as it was, it was also really empowering. And um, I was hooked. I just wanted to continue doing that. So, you know, in university, learning about things, expanding your mind, reading different things. That's all very fun and safe. But in the real world, making decisions about renting a house or buying a car or grocery shopping or where my daughter is going to go to daycare or um, just every single decision that normal people make in their day-to-day lives, but they have been primed for that. They've been prepared, you know? So you see little children, their parents are asking them, would you like the chocolate ice cream or the vanilla ice cream or whatever it is, like small choices like that, that they were able to make throughout their lives so that when they became adults, it wasn't such a shock to their systems that they suddenly have to make these decisions. I was never given any opportunity to make any decisions or make any choices. In fact, as a woman, you are raised to obey. You're trained to be a good wife. You learn to cook, you learn to clean, you learn to shut your mouth and do as you're told. Because the better you are at shutting your mouth and doing as you're told, then the better wife you will be. So those are the things that were celebrated. Those are the things that were encouraged. Um, and so re, you know, just building myself, not even rebuilding, just building myself from the ground up was, oh my gosh, it, it, it was a very difficult yet exciting journey. Um, and, you know, obviously I'm still on it. We're all still on it, but you know, it was kind of great that I could make the decision like, okay, I want to be a feminist. So therefore I will live in this way, or I will make these decisions. And so it was like a kind of like a fake it till you make it type thing that I was doing a lot of until it just became who I was. And I didn't, you know, there was a day when you realize, oh, hang on a minute. I'm not faking it anymore. This is actually who I am. And um, yeah, I had this really sort of the sense of urgency because I had a young daughter. And it was so important to me that I get myself into a position where I was someone that she could look up to. 
Um, I, it was important for me to get into that position before she was old enough to remember me, if that makes sense. So I, so she, I, I didn't, you know, it's like I had a few years, (laughs) I figured her memories will start to solidify it around, you know, age five, six, seven, around then. So I had to really quickly develop myself into somebody who could raise another human being with values that I had already um, sort of uh, vetted and decided, okay, this is these are the things that I want to teach my daughter. And some of those things were things like discovering the the golden rule, you know, treat other people the way you want to be treated. That was a huge epiphany for me. (laughs) I was like, this is great. (laughs) That's going to be part of my repertoire of what's going to build me, you know. And uh, Majid Nawaz in his book, Radical, describes it as picking up a brick and turning it upside down and checking every side of this brick and then determining, is this the brick that I want to add to myself, to this, to this building of myself? And that was such a perfect way of describing it. That's exactly the way it was for me too. You're starting from the ground up. And you just pick up every single brick and you turn it upside down and inside out. Because again, being raised in a Muslim household, um, you don't get to decide who you are or what you think or what you want or what you believe or what feels right. Oh my gosh, you never go by your feelings. Those are irrelevant. In fact, those are dangerous. You never trust your gut. You have to always just go by what the rules say to do. And so that was another huge thing for me too, learning to trust myself and to listen to myself and to believe in myself. Like I said, this is a, a whole other book. There was, there was so much involved with, with rebuilding myself. There's one little passage and, uh, um, that I want to read because um, it will give people a sense of how frank you are in the book. And also, it, I think, really illustrates some of the psychological difficulties that you're talking about here, that difficulty of learning to trust your own intuitions. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you've been kind of infantilized by having to follow, having had to follow strict rules um, laid down by other people for you all of your adult life. And it's... Um, after you have finally got away from your husband, the husband who was a member of Al-Qaeda, lovely man, clearly, mm. um, and you um, have met a, a man called Wayne. Mm-hmm. And um, you write, when we first started sleeping together, I freaked out so much that I almost gave myself a panic attack each time. To calm my nerves, I would imagine that we were married, you and Wayne. Mm-hmm. I was. I would imagine that he was the hateful, violent, horrible man I was married to, and that would be calming. I was so afraid of having sex with a man I wasn't married to that I would imagine I was actually with a man who I didn't want to be with in order to get through it. The brainwashing had a truly insidious hold on me. Wayne was haram. Esam, that was your husband who is in Al-Qaeda, Esam was Halal. Even though I wanted to be with Wayne and hated Esam, 
I could only calm down enough to have sex with Wayne by fantasizing about Essam, if you could even call it that. That is truly messed up. Yeah, I didn't even realize how messed up it was until I actually articulated it to Wayne. And then he was like, what? (laughs) which Which is a very common thing. Quite often I would have these just these beliefs or these thoughts or these fears. And I, I wouldn't even realize how insane they were until I would say it out loud to a, a person. And then, then I would realize like, oh, wow. Okay. That's messed up. Um, I'd like to talk to you in the last bit of this podcast, a bit about your new projects. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, first of all, you have a um, an organization which um, helps no it's it's ex-muslims of both sexes um who have left islam but are still living in muslim majority countries it's called free hearts free minds i'll put a link to it in the show notes Mm -hmm. um can you tell us um more about what you what your organization does yes i would love to i'm very proud of my organization um so as you mentioned it's called free hearts free minds and it was called that because free hearts was referring to the LGBT community, which can be ex- they can be executed in um, about a dozen Muslim majority countries, and in the other countries they're persecuted. Um, and the free minds part is for free thinkers who decide that they no longer want to be part of Islam. Um, it is generally we have had people who. Um, have left Islam and who have embraced Judaism or who have embraced Christianity, but it's mostly people who have left Islam and are non-believers or agnostic atheists. Um, and that's mostly because if you leave Islam and you join another community, then you're generally going to be getting support from that community. But um, if you leave Islam and you don't join another religion, then you're you're left on your own. And that can be very, very dangerous in countries where, like I said, you could be persecuted or executed for leaving the religion. So a lot of our clients, if not all of our clients, are living double lives. They're in the closet. So they're dealing, um, I guess, the most, uh, you know, the, the, the most descriptive way that I could say this is kind of like if you think of what it was like to be gay in uh, the eighties or something when society at large would have really judged you for that, or even before the eighties, when you could lose your job over it or, um, you know, all sorts of other horrific things that, that would happen to people if, if others found out that they weren't straight. So, um, so there's people that if you've left the religion of Islam, you have to keep that as a secret. You have to live a double life. And, you know, a lot of our clients are both. They're both LGBT and have left Islam. And so they have double reason to fear. And um, so I'm very grateful that we've been able to help so many people and we continue to be able to help so many people because of the generous donations that we receive. We, we run entirely on donations. And um, we are in the process now of becoming a incorporated charity. 
in uh, the state of California, actually, Sam Harris is paying for our lawyers to get this all done for us. So he's an amazing human being, and I'm very grateful to him for that. And um, yeah, so that's my organization. And my book that you mentioned that I'm going to be writing is kind of based on the stories of the people that we've interacted with through Free Hearts, Free Minds. So not all of the people in the book have been through our organization, but they are people that I have met through my activism work. And it's going to be a, a book that's a, I'm just going to compile stories of different women. So this is where the women part comes in that you were thinking about, that it's compiling the stories of women who have overcome, women who have um, overcome huge obstacles and have survived and let that, let their stories be inspiring and motivating for other people who are trying to, to break free from the oppressive systems that they're under. So I, I do a lot of this work because, you know, as you mentioned early on, I was born and raised in Canada. It's a very free country. And my story is shocking to a lot of people, but really my story is benign and easy. I had such an easy, privileged um, uh, journey out of Islam because I was living in a free secular country. People who are living in Muslim-majority countries who have the exact same thoughts and feelings as I did, who have the exact same fears and angers and everything, they have nowhere to go. They can't just you know, get student loans and start going to university. They, they are completely restricted. And so I really feel for people who are living in those countries. And that's why all, almost, that's why definitely my organization focuses on people in Muslim majority countries. And um, all of my activism generally focuses in that direction as well, because those are the people that we don't get to hear from. Their voices are muffled. They're, they are silenced. They're literally silenced by being put in prison or by being killed. And so if we here in the West are privileged enough or lucky enough to be able to speak up on their behalf, then it's our responsibility to do so. I feel compelled to do so. Yeah, I'm going to read another passage, um, which I think is a very powerful um, statement of, of, um, of your message. Um, you're talking about um, young feminists in the West. And you say, unlike the women before us who had to tear down old growth thousand-year-old trees and build new roads one, pave, one paving stone at a time, these young women were born into a world where there were bulldozers at the ready, willing to support them in their endeavour. The work was happening the fight had essentially been won. We didn't need to convince anyone that there needed to be roads to equality. Everyone was already on board. But these young women wanted to build roads too. Since most roads had already been paved, these young women so full of energy exerted their efforts in different directions. They began to discuss whether we should start calling ourselves women with an X if air conditioner settings in the workplace are sexist, 
and how to counter the social phenomenon known as manspreading. With no legitimate problems to overcome, they invented problems so they could fulfill their desire to solve them. If only those young women knew that there is a way to travel back in time, to link hands with the history-making heroines who had risked their lives to fight for freedom. There is a way they could channel their energy into supporting women who just want to be regarded as equal human beings by the men in their societies. And, sorry, to the men in their societies. I'm skipping a little bit here, and then you say, It is devastating to see this disconnect. Young women here are looking for a fight, and young women there, in in, uh, Muslim-majority countries, desperately need fighters to stand with them. It should be a match made in sisterhood heaven. If only women were willing to link hands across borders, patriarchy would not stand a chance. Patriarchy cannot exist without the active participation of women. Yasmin, um, is there anything you would like to say as a final message to the podcast listeners or anything you feel is important that I haven't given you a chance to say? No, I think we've covered quite a few uh, very important things. In fact, you've asked me a lot of questions I've never been asked before and touched on things that I never had an opportunity to talk about before. So this was really great. I really appreciate that. Um, And yeah, if your listeners want to get my book and read it, that's wonderful. Um, I encourage them to also check out the testimonials page on my Free Hearts, Free Minds website, because then you'll be able to read stories of, of people that we've helped. And that's really my, you know, that's so rewarding for me. And that's really the oxygen for all of the work that I do. That's the wind in my sails is just knowing that one by one, we're able to help people. And um, I hope that it will motivate your listeners to want to help as well. I hope so too. I'll put all of this information in the show notes for them. And thank you so much, Yasmin. My absolute pleasure. Have a wonderful week, everyone. If you're hearing this, you have been listening to one of our full-length public episodes. To access full-length versions of all our episodes, support the podcast on Patreon at 2 for Tea. You can also find us on Twitter at 2 for Tea PC, Papa Charlie. Stay well, stay happy, and have a wonderful week.